From the Defense Acquisition University, this is the Learning Circle. This is the Learning Circle. I'm Anthony Rotolo, and today I'm joined by Karen Hyder. Karen is an expert in synchronous learning, and she's been teaching others how to use technology since 1991. To highlight just a few aspects of her career, she's the founder of Kaleidoscope Training and Consulting, a firm that helps technical trainers and subject matter experts improve both online and in-person delivery. And she's the co-author of the title, The E-Learning Guild's Handbook on Synchronous Learning. And you can also find Karen on the wonderful lynda.com training website, I'm a big fan, where she's created training on some specific tools that allow for synchronous training. Karen, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Welcome to The Learning Circle. Thank you, Anthony. Now, I wanted to talk with you today about adapting traditional classroom design the kind of instruction that occurs in a bricks-and-mortar physical environment, and turning that into virtual instruction, which is done, of course, via the Internet through software environments, two very distinct methods of delivery. How do we cross that divide? How do we even approach the prospect? That's kind of what I want to talk to you about today. But my first question is more about defining terms. How do you define virtual instructor-led training? How does it fit in with all the related terms, blended and synchronous, asynchronous, mm-hmm. et cetera? Well, virtual instructor-led is meant to play on the idea of instructor-led training, where you go to a classroom and there's a leader there who will take you through content and will course correct along the way. So if you make mistakes, you'll immediately have somebody there to tell you what mistakes you're making. And that is really valuable for learners because it's easy for us to work at our own pace and not know we're making mistakes. So to have that course correction is helpful. Online, we do the same types of content. We deliver training and it's live. So we're able to course correct along the way. But the major difference is we don't actually see each other, at least not physically. We might see each other through webcam technology, but we're really presenting content through the software interface using things like PowerPoint or live application sharing where we can do demonstrations of tools like software tools. So really the the core of it, the instructing and facilitating is kind of the same. It's just the methods, the product features that you have at your disposal mm-hmm. that can make the difference mm-hmm. there. There are key differences as well. There are some distinct differences in, in how you teach online. It's a different environment where you do lose the face-to-face immediacy that has other advantages. Do those differences add up to a new skill set for instructors that instructors have to develop to be good in that online environment? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's a new skill set. I see it as more of an evolution of your old skill set. So you're still needing to communicate clearly. You're still needing to have the right terminology. You're still needing to be able to work through the material in the time allotted. You're still engaging with learners and answering their questions and giving them clear instructions on how to perform activities. But the difference is you're limited in that you're using either voice over IP audio or telephony audio. You can't just easily converse back and forth the way you might do in a face-to-face environment. And you can't really see what students are doing at their machines. So you can't easily walk around and observe or listen in on people's conversations like you would do in the physical classroom. 
So the difficulty is that trainers feel that their skill set doesn't work in this environment, but the reality is it is the same skill set. It's just that we need to expand it beyond what we used in the physical classroom. Okay, that makes sense. And it reminds me a little bit of usability, the way when we do e-learning, you know that you're not there with the student physically. So we do cue and clue them visually and in other ways so they know what to do. Is that Does that become more pronounced for the instructor? Absolutely. Yeah, it's very hard to wing it in a virtual class setting because... We can't read the body language of people. We don't really know how they're consuming the information. And if they have questions that are off topic, it's hard to really switch and do something on the fly because you might not have any materials prepared for that. Or maybe because the the training program was condensed, you don't have time to go off topic. So it makes it challenging for trainers to work in that environment initially because things are just different enough to throw them off of their natural way of operating. You're doing a lot of anticipating of uh, just in terms of their orientation, knowing what's coming up and what to do next. Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the things we really recommend here is that idea of prompting for participation. In a physical classroom, we're so reliant on reading body language and eye contact cues. And online, we kind of operate without those, but assuming those things are still happening. So I might say to somebody rather than, I see that you all understand what I'm saying Mm because your heads are nodding and you're making eye contact with me and you're smiling at me. So that tells me you're learning and you're ready to move on. But online, I have to actually say, are you with me and are you learning? Please change your status to green checkmark or type a question in chat. And that's awkward for trainers. They're not used to having to ask people to give them feedback that way. They're just observing it and then using that feedback and working with it to move through the content. Yeah, and I have some experience with that these days as a student. I'm taking classes online and I have an instructor, thankfully, who's very good, very comfortable in that environment. But just like you said, there are points where, you know, hey, raise your hand or give me a green check mark. And then as a student, you're also used to, you know, it's a two-way street. You're realizing that We've got to cue each other so the instructor understands that we're tracking with him. And I imagine you have moments where there's a pregnant pause, right? <laughs> a really long pregnancy, like yeah. a 10-month pregnancy. Yeah, I mean, we used to say that in the physical classroom, if you ask a question, wait nine seconds yes. for the participants to respond because it takes them three seconds to realize a question was asked, three seconds to come up with an answer, and three seconds mm, to respond. Okay. Online, it's more like 30 or 45 seconds. Oh, my. Because, first of all, they have to pull their head out of the inbox or Facebook where they were and then realize what the question was, then take some time to type or click hand raise and unmute their microphone and finally answer. And that can take many, many seconds. And that pregnant pause is painful for the trainer to wait and and, uh, uh, have people respond eventually. How tough is that? Just it occurs (laughs) to me to ask about you know, the social media distractions, is that becoming more of a factor? It's always been a factor, really. There's always been that distraction element because in in the early days, people would say, oh, well, I don't know if my students are, they could be doing laundry, they could be cooking, they could be doing any number of things and I wouldn't know. And that's true. You can't see them, so you don't know unless you're on webcam. So now we realize that people might be tweeting or they might be posting on Facebook or there's any number of things that they could be doing on their other devices while in the middle of the session. And I think the reality is as webinars became popular and people started using them, 
learners realize that these are a great thing to have on while they're multitasking. So for them, it made sense to be able to do two things at one time. So webinars kind of got off to a bad start because people were using this technology and purposely multitasking during that time. But as you know, adult learners don't do very well when they're multitasking because there's really no such thing. There's as, no such thing. That's yeah, right. Yeah, you're really task swapping. Yeah. I so, call it, we just unitask. It's just how quickly can you shift your attention, right? Exactly. But for me, I can't even watch the news and watch the ticker at the same time. If I'm reading the ticker, I'm not hearing what the announcer is saying. So it's easy to let yourself get distracted and you miss the critical content. So that is a key concern for moving into a virtual classroom because... Learners need to keep their attention on that content, but you aren't controlling their attention on that content. They have to self-manage. That's right. Well, the hope is, like you said, the key word is adult learners, but we had to manage ourselves when we were eight years old in a physical classroom, whether it was pulling the pigtails in front of us or I never did that. Of course not. But it's just a discipline. It's a discipline as a part of learning. Well, let me say a little bit more about that. Yeah, and as that discipline, if we're not in the physical classroom and it isn't a controlled audience, an, an audience with undivided attention, the trainer feels out of control. The trainer feels like they want to regain control of the audience's attention, and they're often frustrated that they never had that control. They mm. never get that control. And you can't close the door and keep people in the room until break time or lunchtime. Right. They're wandering off. So it really it's an expectation going in that you have a very loose control of attention. It's a looser steering wheel as the facilitator, <laughs> right? Absolutely. Now, these days, I'm thinking about stakeholders. I'm thinking about folks who may need convincing mm -hmm. or are a little bit outside of this world. Would you say there's any lingering bias against the virtual online classroom? Is it seen as maybe a poor man's version of traditional training and in fact, is there any evidence that one is better than the other? Mm. I think there is evidence that says one is not better than the other. The evidence says they're the same, but it's not the interface. It's not the environment that makes them the same. It's the design and the delivery. It's what you're doing with it. And full disclosure, I was in your session. We're at Learning Solutions Conference this year, and you had a great analogy about uh, this is like debating chalk versus markers, right? <laughs> right. They're different tools. It's how you use them. It's what you convey with them. Yeah. Let uh, me say this, though. Let's remember that nobody was really watching instructor-led training in the physical environment. So our assumption was that all physical classroom training was good and then all online virtual training was bad. But you know yourself, you've been to, uh, to training classes in the physical environment that were terrible. But nobody was watching and nobody was giving feedback and nobody was making that trainer do something differently. We just accepted it because right. we're stuck in the room with a shut door and we need to learn this. So now there's more critiquing. There's more feedback. You know more about what the learners are getting out of it and whether they like it or don't like it based on the design and the feedback that you've built in. And with big data, there's all kinds of measurement that we can do. But yeah, traditional classroom is just another format that can be used optimally or, or underutilized. Mm -hmm. It can be suboptimal. And you're right, we've been in better or worse classroom situations. But I would say that there's huge advantages to virtual instructor-led because in the physical classroom, literally only a few people could respond to questions at a time because we're, we're limited in time. So you can't easily have 30 people answer a question. 
you have two people answer a question and it's probably the same two most of the time. But online, you could have 30 people answering because they're all clicking on a poll or they're all typing in chat. So I feel that it allows for a broader reach to the audience members and it allows a more level playing field for all participants. So to me, I see it as a better environment than the physical Is there any study on personality differences, the introvert, not to misuse those terms, but maybe the the person that might be more shy in person in a group setting may be different online because they have a little bit of anonymity compared to a classroom. Is there any um, study about that? I don't have empirical data on that, but I will say that in my experience, people do well across the board regardless of their personality type because they are sort of all put in the same position. You're all equally unable to communicate or to hog the limelight. So I find that people are just more ready and more able and more willing to participate regardless of their personality or their language skills. You know, if English is not your first language, you might hesitate to speak up in a classroom, but maybe you wouldn't hesitate to just respond to a poll or type in chat. That's right. Like you're mentioning, there's other modes to get participation that are different than a traditional classroom. Very, very interesting. It seems to me that a lot of the design effort here amounts to translation. And I'm thinking in terms first of suitability, that word suitability. What worked in the classroom may not work online. And by the same token, there's all these neat features in the tools, whether it's virtual whiteboards or breakout rooms, etc., But my question is, what are those suitability factors that you have to think through when you're determining the fit of how best to adapt content for virtual instructor-led training? So I would say it's important to do some analysis to say how to say which of this content really needs an instructor to run it. Because you might realize that of the course that you're delivering, much of it does not need an instructor. It's just a well-written job aid or a readme file, or maybe a click through an e-learning program, maybe a recording of the trainer talking through the content, but it doesn't really require feedback and it doesn't require hands-on anything. But in those situations where you really need the instructor to be there to help shepherd the learners through the learning process and to answer questions along the way, or to adapt the content for one audience versus another audience. Those you could say, okay, we really need an instructor there. But even in that, you might say, well, if I'm doing something physical, like I'm learning how to shoot a gun, it would be difficult for my trainer to see me doing handling the equipment and to give feedback. You might need to incorporate a webcam into a situation like that if you really needed it. But you might say, well, I'm going to approach this from a blended standpoint where we do some stuff together with an instructor and some stuff independently, and maybe some face-to-face. We continue to use the face-to-face for those application pieces. So as far as suitability goes, part of it is determining what we need an instructor for. And then beyond that, can this instructor deliver this message without seeing the students? without being there in the physical classroom. And I would say almost every topic I've encountered, virtual instructor-led is as effective and as useful as the physical instructor-led. But we often whittle down the time that's available to less time. So we, from a suitability standpoint, we might be approaching it as how much time do we have to deliver the content? And of that time, how much can we afford to have an instructor be involved and how much of it should students do on their own? 
That's very interesting. A couple of thoughts occur to me. We hear a lot about flipping the classroom. So I see an advantage there that, you know, this design thought, this analysis of how to repurpose content to a virtual environment requires a lot of precise thought where I think sometimes maybe when we're just leaning on the one mode of expression, which is the instructor, it can be a lazier design process where we're just saying, oh, this instructor will do this and they'll do that. And what you get sometimes is maybe not the best use of the classroom. And that's why perhaps making a portion of it asynchronous so a student might look at a video or do some reading and then come to the classroom better equipped to do something with facilitation can be very beneficial. I totally agree. And it's funny that you say that because my experience with classroom training felt like a lot of wasted time. I'm here having this person lecture to me about stuff that I could read my, on my own. I can read those slides. I don't need you to read those slides to me. So why do I have to be here working through at your pace? I'd rather work through at my own pace. But there's other times where you really want somebody to, to help out and to understand, like, how does this affect me? How does this affect my job and my role and my perspective on this thing that I'm learning? And in those cases, I want that trainer to adapt or translate so that I understand it in my own words and in my own frame of mind. And that's where I want the trainer that or the instructor instead of a book or an e-learning that might be a little too flat. Does Bloom's taxonomy come into play yeah, in what content ends up as facilitated versus what a student can read on their own? Yeah, I think it's a great tool to start with if you want to measure everything against that and say, what am I really trying to get here? Am I just trying to get knowledge? Am I really just trying to push knowledge? If so, a lecture is actually a reasonable way to do that. But if you're going to make me listen to you lecture, don't make me do it at some terrible time of the day when it's really inconvenient for me just because it's convenient for you to deliver that message at that time. Just record it and let me listen to the recording when I'm driving in the car or when I'm riding the train or on the treadmill. So I want to be able to consume that broadcast content my own way. I don't need you to give it to me in, in this pre-assigned time block. So that's the base level, right? But if I'm starting to get more into synthesis and, and getting into the more challenging aspects of Bloom, it's complicated. There's factors that come into play. There's prerequisite knowledge that comes into play. There's even playing off of other learners' experience and issues. And that's like the sweet spot. You know, that's the spot where we really care about having an instructor facilitate the discussion and the activities so it's as rich and as meaningful as it can be. And so I do think Bloom plays into it. And really, we as instructional designers can ask ourselves, what level are we trying to get to? What are we really trying to accomplish in this? And is this a tool that's required for this, or would some other easier, simpler way be enough? Excellent. Now, with so much reliance on tools and software, these are the stuff of virtual training and technologies that sometimes don't behave themselves properly, mm -hmm. you know, internet connections that hiccup at the wrong times. I imagine you go in with a bit of contingency planning for the smoothest experience. What is that planning mentality like? And do you use any authoring tools that help you to tech-proof the online instruction? I don't use authoring tools to do it. I use the very basic tools, the software interface itself, like Adobe Connect or WebEx or the go-to products or Zoom, whatever it might be, 
And honestly, I use a lot of PowerPoint to keep the content in a structural format. But that structural format is really just the skeleton of my program. And I can jump off of that and go into different directions if I need to. But I would say, you know, if you're working in the virtual classroom and you feel paranoid that things are going to go wrong, good. That paranoia should help drive your concern about what can go wrong and what will go wrong in the virtual classroom. And as you think about what can and will go wrong, assume that that will happen in your class. So my strategy is to always have a plan B and often a plan C and a plan D for every aspect of my program, from the audio to the visuals to how will the interactions take place to if I have a poll and the poll doesn't work, how will I ask the question? How will I let students do an assignment if they can't access the server that has the assignment. So every activity and every interaction that happens, I have a backup plan for. And that is very much driven by paranoia that things will go wrong and previous experience that things have gone wrong and do go wrong. Well, just like this interview I'm conducting, I have my interview prep and I've got it backed up in a cloud note-taking tool and sent a copy to my email because you never know what's going to happen. You're saying it sounds like you've got it very almost scripted or storyboarded so that if you launch a piece of functionality and that fails, you you don't have to really bat an eyelash. You can kind of go to the next fallback means of delivering that, right? Yeah, I'm batting my eyelashes a lot, yeah. (laughs) Uh, It's still very stressful, but it's comforting to know the solution is at your fingertips. You might need to have a little, you know, brain power working to remember how you were going to solve that problem. But if the solutions are right at your fingertips, then you can seamlessly fix problems without the participants knowing that that happened. Or at least it's less of an intrusion Uh in the learning process. And, you know, that could seem like a knock on virtual online or, you know, disadvantage. But how many times have we been in a traditional environment and the projector is not working? Or how do you make the screen come down? Or how do you do this? Or the, you know, the fire drill, all this stuff, right? So I think there has to be a baseline, just like we touched on a few beats back earlier in this discussion, just going in with, all the expectations adjusted, the kind of an attention you're going to command, and then the ability to command the technology. All very, very helpful advice. Do you have any tips on making the case to our stakeholders who need convincing <laughs> about virtual online? You know, the toughest thing about making the case is when you don't understand what something is, you make up things about what it is. So if your stakeholders believe that what virtual classrooms are, are maybe the terrible webinars that they've seen in the past where it was really just chalk and talk and there was no interaction and it was dull and the presenter's voice just droned on, if that's what their experience is, then no, they're not going to like it and they're not going to buy it. One big tip that I would recommend to anybody who's trying to win over stakeholders is go for a small win. Create something that's short and that's fantastic, well-designed, well-produced, well-delivered in a software product that's behaving properly, and let them experience it firsthand. The sell will be a lot easier after that. But it's so easy to come up with a list of pros cost savings, you don't have real estate of empty classrooms, you're not dealing with an IT support team, you're not dealing with travel, you're not serving lunch, you're not serving coffee. That alone is a huge cost savings Mm. for any organization or training company. So that's a great selling point. But there's always the but. 
but technology can fail. Our trainers are afraid. Our learners won't like it. People don't have that kind of attention span. I find that all that stuff is just sort of a lame excuse because they're afraid. They're really afraid yeah. to try it. There's a cultural shift, I think. You know, the classic, I mean, just in any kind of design realm, a subject matter expert, or in this case, maybe a traditional instructor working maybe with an ISD who's trying to get them to see what a future state could look like. And there's a, I think there's a bit of being willing to not hold certain things so closely to their chest anymore that they, the, the baggage they come in with their comfort zone mm-hmm. is what I'm talking about yeah. and moving them there. So. Yeah, we're like exploding their comfort zone. So presenters are often very concerned about how will I just be natural? I don't know how to be natural in this environment. I feel so unnatural because I can't read body language. I'm not getting cues from mm-hmm. my audience members. And I'm, I feel weird about having a headset on. I feel weird about talking into a microphone and having to control muting and unmuting. So things feel awkward to people. And for me, train the trainer is crucial because if you don't get your trainer over the hurdle of what's going to be different and how will you behave differently in this environment and how will you invite interaction and support the learner's learning, then they're going to continue to fall back on their own techniques, the things that they've done their whole lives. Even when they were students in school, they saw teachers doing what they're doing now. And that's what they like. You know, we're talking about trainers are typically people who are gregarious people. They like to be in front of an audience. They love to tell a story. They love to use hand gestures and they love to draw on the board and things like that. And now all those things feel like they've closed in. And now all we have is a screen and some names and a list. And that feels really lonely and really ineffective. They're doing it through a medium. And I think part of the, the honest answer is it just takes time to get comfortable in a a new medium. Yeah. Excellent advice, though. I thank you for your time. For our listeners who want to follow up with your articles and resources online, where can we find you? Well, I have a WordPress blog, and if you know my name, Karen Hyder, H-Y-D-E-R, you can find me on WordPress. I have a website, KarenHyder.com. You can certainly find me there. And I also tweet (laughs) sometimes. So you can find me on Twitter at, at Karen Hyder. Yes, and I'll remind listeners, you can find Karen's work at lynda.com. A lot of folks use that as a training outlet, so look for you there as well. Karen, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To catch up on all of our shows, subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Learning Circle is produced and distributed by the Defense Acquisition University.